0: Hello, and welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast. I am very glad to be back home from Toronto, where I spent most of last week for the Canada Reads Prize. That's the CBC's annual National Book Award that my book, Radicalized, has been shortlisted for. We recorded a ton of media, did some live events, and you'll be seeing that come out over the next couple of months on the way to the championship in March, when one of the five shortlist books will be crowned the uh, Canada Reads top read for the country for the year. And I hope you will follow that along. And if you're in Canada, I hope you'll keep in mind that it's a prize that's voted on by the public. And while all five of the books are very good, I think mine is especially great and you can actually sample some of that. If you go to Ars Technica, they have published the full text of Unauthorized Bread. That's the first of the four novellas in that book. It's been getting very good notices since it came out. Slashdot featured it, and uh, I've had lots of fan mail from it. And that novella, as well as the other ones in that book, they're all eligible for this year's Hugo Award, and you can nominate for the Hugo if you attended last year's Worldcon in Dublin, or if you've already registered to attend next year's Worldcon in Wellington, New Zealand. And I do hope you'll keep that in mind. Some of you have already written to me to say that you've put it on your ballot. I'm so excited to hear that and very thankful and grateful to you. While I was in Toronto, I finished the outline for The Lost Cause. That's the novel that I'm working on now. It's a post-Green New Deal utopian novel set in Burbank, California, where I live. And it is about truth and reconciliation in the wake of a successful climate transition and what you do with the people who are on the wrong side of a just revolution. I don't normally outline in great detail. I'm more of a pantser than a plotter. But with Attack Surface, the third Little Brother book that's coming out in October, I found myself having kind of written myself into a corner. I ended up with a book that was 170,000 words long, and I really wanted it to be like 135,000 words long and with a great deal of help from juliet ullman and other editorial feedback i was able to make that change but it made me really appreciate how a little more forethought and planning would have avoided that rather sticky situation and so with the lost cause i'm doing something i've never done before which is a very detailed outline so that nearly 20,000 word outline was finished last week and i'm refining it and then i'm going to get to work on the book I also last week got two emails from my editor with the cover art for my next two books. This summer, Tor Books will reissue Little Brother and Homeland with a very special introduction by someone who remains a secret, but you'll learn about very soon. And then in October, they're publishing the third Little Brother book, the one I just mentioned, Attack Surface. And Will Stela, who's done the covers for all my adult novels, starting with Walk Away, and they did all the back catalog and Radicalized, he is doing the covers for those books as well, and they are characteristically amazing. So we'll be doing cover reveals for those soon, but I just wanted to let you know that I'm sitting here with some printouts of those covers right in front of me, and every time I look at them, I get a little warm glow. So it's been a good week all round. I am about to read to you for this podcast a column I wrote for Guardian Cities. This was a long-running section in the Guardian newspaper in the UK, where I was a columnist for about a decade. And for which section I've contributed before, the editors of Guardian Cities read a little piece I wrote for Toronto Life and asked me to expand it into a full-length column. And it turned out to be the last thing they ever commissioned. The sponsor who had been backing Guardian Cities, I think, has pulled out or the sponsorship deal ended. And so the section is not adding any new stuff. So, it's the capstone to that very excellent long running sequence. And it builds on some other work I've done the Toronto Life essay, something I wrote for Locust magazine called What If People Were Censors and Not Things to Be Sensed. And it envisions a much more humane, less commodified, and non surveilling smart city. And now I will read to you The Case for Cities That Aren't Dystopian Surveillance States, first published in Guardian Cities. smart city is one of those science fiction phrases seemingly designed to make you uneasy like neuromarketing or pre-crime. It's impossible to be alive in this decade and not find something unsettling in the idea of our cities becoming smart. It's not hard to see why. Smart has become code for terrible. A smart speaker is a speaker that eavesdrops on you and leaks all of your conversations to distant subcontractors for giant tech companies. Smart watches spy on your movements and sell them to data brokers for ad targeting. Smart TVs watch you as you watch them, and sell your viewing habits to brokers. Smart cities are studded with sensors that monitor what's going on with people, vehicles, and infrastructure, and use actuators to change things based on the resultant data. Put that way, it's hard to imagine a city that's not smart. When you call 999, you are acting as a sensor. The fire brigade comes rowing to the rescue in a fire engine, that is, a giant high-speed actuating robot. Transit systems are all sensors. Is there a train ahead of me still at the platform? And actuators. Hit the brakes! And they've been steadily exposing more and more of the data they generate to potential riders, so you can text a number, or use an app, or check a lighted signboard to find the wait time until the next vehicle. All this raises an interesting question. Why isn't it creepy for you to know when the next bus is due, but it is creepy for the bus company to know that you're waiting for a bus? It all comes down to whether you are a sensor or a thing to be sensed. In the Internet of Things, we're promised technology that will allow us to project our will onto our surroundings, changing our lighting or unlocking our doors or adjusting our thermostats from anywhere in the world. But anyone who's used these technologies for more than a few minutes quickly starts to suspect that they are also a thing, just another thing to be sensed and acted upon from a distance, generally by unaccountable algorithms seeking to corral us into altering our conduct to maximize returns to their manufacturer's shareholders. As with cities, homes were sensing and actuating long before the Internet of Things emerged. Thermostats, light switches, humidifiers, combi boilers, our homes are stuffed full of automated tools that no one thinks to call smart, largely because they aren't terrible enough to earn the appellation. Instead, these things are oriented around serving us, rather than observing or controlling us, with rare exceptions, such as electricity and gas meters, which were designed on the assumption that they were going into hostile territory, and that we couldn't be trusted not to tamper with them. In your home, you are not a thing, you are a person, and the things around you exist for your comfort and benefit, not the other way around. Shouldn't it be that way in our cities? There's nothing wrong, or new, in the idea that we should sense what's happening in our built environments and alter how our systems perform to respond to those sensors' observations. There's nothing objectionable about adding more trains when the system is busy, or recording accurate usage data to inform our urban planning debates. The problem is that the smart city, as presently conceived, is a largely privatized affair designed as a public-private partnership to extract as much value as possible from its residents while providing the instrumentation and infrastructure to control any civil unrest such an arrangement might provoke. Far from treating residents as first-class users of smart infrastructure, they are treated as something between gut flora and pathogen, an inchoate mask of troublesome specks to be nudged into deterministic, convenient-to-manage patterns. It needn't be this way. As is so often the case with technology, the most important consideration isn't what the technology does, it's who the technology does it to, and who it does it for. The sizzle reel for a smart city always involves a cut to the control room where the wise, cool-headed technocrats get a god's-eye view over the city they've instrumented and kitted out with electronic ways of reaching into the world and rearranging its furniture. It's a safe bet that the people who make those videos imagine themselves as one of the controllers watching the monitors, not as one of the plebs whose movements are being fed to the cameras that feed those monitors. It's a safe bet that most of us would like that kind of god's-eye view into our cities. And with a little tweaking, we could have it. If we decide to treat people as sensors and not as things to be sensed, if we observe Kant's injunction that humans should be treated as an end in themselves and not as a means to something else, then we can modify the smart city to gather information about the things and share that information with the people. Imagine a human centered smart city that knows everything it can about things. It knows how many seats are free on every bus. It knows how busy every road is. It knows where there are short hire bikes available and where there are potholes. It knows how much footfall every meter of pavement receives and which public loos are busiest. What it doesn't know is anything about individuals in the city. It knows about things, not people. All of that data is tremendously useful to the city's planners and administrators, of course, as a way of planning and optimizing services, infrastructure, and future building. But it could also be useful to the people in the city. While we're imagining a city that is instrumented to measure things but not people, try imagining a mobile device that gathers data about its user but doesn't ever share that data with anyone, ever. Its backups are encrypted to a passphrase that only the user knows, and it jealously guards the data about its use from the vendors who supply its apps. The device knows everywhere you go, it knows what you buy, it knows whom you talk to and how long and maybe even what about. In other words, it is extremely similar to the device you're carrying around right now, with the vital difference that it keeps what it learns about you private. Now, equipped with your device, you are prepared to be a sensor rather than a thing to be sensed. As you move about your smart city, the things around you stream data about their capabilities, limitations, prices, uses, and nature. Want to find a loo? Your device not only knows which ones are free, but also what time you habitually pee and whether or not you've been drinking a lot of water and might need one. Want a free seat on the bus? Likewise, the device will tell you where there is one free. When you stand at a bus stop, your presence, but not your identity, is registered, so the transit system can adjust the vehicles and routes. All of this is simply broadcast to all the devices in the vicinity, and your device can tune in to a stream of data by simply plucking it out of the electromagnetic spectrum, without activating a connection to the server that would leave a record of what you took an interest in. If you want to page a minibus, something like an Uber Pool but run by the city, licensed, safe, paying a living wage and not mining your data, you can summon one and yes, this exposes your identity so the driver can find you. This is an example of how a smart city could work. A place through which you move in relative anonymity, identified only when needed, and under conditions that allow for significant controls over what can be done with your data. Such a city depends on a responsive, legitimate government, and on devices that are open and transparent, freely auditable and secured through widespread scrutiny of their inner workings. It is a city and a technology and a government oriented around its people, designed to treat people as an end in themselves and not as a means to something else. If it sounds so utopian, that's only because of how far we have come from the idea of a city being designed to serve its demos rather than its lordly masters. We must recover that idea. As a professional cyberpunk dystopian writer, I'm here to tell you that our ideas were intended as warnings, not suggestions. All right, then, thank you very much. Enjoy your week. I'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Cory Doctorow Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non Commercial, Share alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the u.s under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours because we don't give a dern. publish it write it sing it swing to it yodel it we wrote it that's all we wanted to do many thanks to john taylor williams for mastering that's rye studio w-r-y-n-e-c-k studio at gmail.com john taylor williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer producer composer and sound designer in his free time he makes beer jewelry odd musical instruments and furniture he likes to meditate to read and to cook talk to you next week